The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Or for, use First John 1 9 if necessary, then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together tonight to be refreshed by the study of your word, to take our minds off of all the things that have been going on in our private lives in celebration of Christmas and family events, to put our focus back on the eternal truths of Scripture. Now, as we study these things, may we be able to concentrate and focus and put aside the cares and concerns about distracting events in our lives and put our attention on what the Holy Spirit has to teach us this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we went into Genesis chapter 42, and I want to go back there by way of some review because we're getting into this section, long section of narrative that that builds, and what's interesting is when you get into certain sections of Scripture like this, there's a number of important doctrines that are being illustrated in the events and by the people that are uh, being that are, that are involved in the events of the narrative. And so we sometimes you have to spend a lot of time going through just what happened before you can lay the foundation for the application. And we always remember there's three stages. In going through the text, that's just understanding what happened. And then secondly, we have to understand the interpretation. And the interpretation relates to what the original writer of Scripture was intending to communicate to his audience. And then from that framework, we build our application. So when we get into a section like this that actually goes from about chapter 42 down to about 47, it's a huge chunk of narrative, but it all relates to basic issues in the spiritual life that haven't changed even though there are certain dispensational distinctives between the Old Testament period and the New Testament period. Of course, they're not even under the Mosaic Law during the time of the patriarchs. But what we see here is basic issues related to sin, related to its consequences, not only in terms of the relationship with God, but also the impact of sin on uh, horizontal relationships, and in this case the relationships within the family of Israel that, that are indeed the seed, the chosen people through whom God has determined he will bless the entire world. So this uh, fragmentation that has taken place because of sin uh, may have dire consequences, and we see a resolution of that through these chapters. So it involves uh, forgiveness. It involves learning how to forgive and to 
be gracious to those who have uh, sinned and committed. We have a problem. Yeah. They didn't turn on earlier? Okay. So, it involves people having to deal with relationships with other sinful people who have hurt them, betrayed them, who have treated them treacherously, especially in the case of Joseph where his brothers sold him into slavery, but it goes into a broader area as well. And so all of this involves, of course, doctrines that go beyond forgiveness, but also personal love for God and impersonal love for all mankind. So we need to focus a little bit on the general structure here. Let me fix something on the computer before we can go forward. All right, a minute. See, I just love technology sometimes. Okay. Here we go. Okay, here's an outline of, still not there. Okay, here's our outline of the structure in these chapters between chapter 30, chapters 37 and 47. It's arranged chiastically. Now, chiasm is a figure, it is a literary device for organizing material in such a way that you, you emphasize the important aspect, the core issue, the core area in a narrative by way of its arrangement. And uh, the Greek letter Chi is like our X. And so if you think about one side of an X where it comes down and then it comes in and then out, that's how you see the arrangement of the outline here. And you'll usually have the first two, three, four, five. I've even seen some people develop 25-point chiastic structures in the Scripture where it's 25 points in and then 25 points out. But it drives our attention to the events that are in the middle of the chiasm, and there's a parallelism, so that at the beginning, chapter 37, we see the narrative about Joseph's special coat, and he has these dreams of ruling over his family, dreams of ruling over his brothers, and of course, we remember that he told his brothers, and his brothers were very upset, became very angry and bitter and hostile toward them, so we see this whole dynamic of mental attitude sins taking place within the family. They were so mad at him, so angry and vengeful that they couldn't even speak to them. And then they hatched this plot to kill him. And that's the second point in chapter 37, 12 to 36. The brothers' uh, crime. That's, I edited this this morning. The bro- oh, the brothers' crime against and separation from Joseph. They, their crime of selling him into slavery and then they separated from him. And see, this mirrors the eventually the eventual reunion of the brothers uh, with and the reunion of the family of Israel in chapter 45. Then in chapter 38, we had what appears to be 
this odd break in the narrative where the focus goes to Judah and Tamar. We learn a lot about Judah's family. Judah marries a Canaanite woman. He raises uh, his three sons, and they are the first two die the sinner to death because they are so evil. Of course, Judah didn't know that was why they died. And he, in some sort of superstitious way, blamed Tamar. Tamar married the first one. He died then uh, Onan is to marry her because he is the, uh, the the brother. And so under levered marriage, he would then marry. But he refuses to fulfill his uh, responsibilities as the levered husband. And then uh, Tamar is promised to the youngest son. And he refuses, or Judah refuses, to fulfill his obligation there. And so Tamar is wronged, and Judah is just living like a pagan. He's not uh, has no integrity. He's not obedient to his promises, doesn't fulfill his promises. And the result is that Tamar then must disguise herself as a prostitute, and she deceives Judah, and Judah makes this bargain with her, and they, of course, have sexual relations. She gets pregnant, and then she comes back and has his... A cord in his staff, which would be like today we would go to some place and purchase something, and if we didn't have any money to pay for it, they would ask for our driver's license and credit card. That's about uh, what the uh, cultural analogy would be. And so she comes back and shows him the staff and his seal and his signet cord, and she, and you know, he recognizes how he has uh, defrauded her. And he says, she is really more righteous than I am. And that's an important verse we'll come back to later because that's a turning point in his spiritual life. And from that point on, he goes in the right direction. So you have this event with Judah and Tamar, which is very important. It's parallel to what we'll see tonight in chapter 43, Judah and Benjamin, because he has dealt unrighteously with Tamar, But he realizes that there's an admission of guilt and sin, and he uh, is restored to fellowship and moves forward in his spiritual life so that when he has this um, opportunity to be the protector and pledge for Benjamin, he does so with integrity. It shows a tremendous change that takes place. Of course, the lesson there is no matter how much you regress spiritually no matter how much you're mired in pagan thought and in sinful activity. There's always hope, and the grace of God can always bring about a restoration and growth and advance. And one of the interesting things we're going to see is how all of this works together in the whole narrative of Genesis because Judah is in a position where where when we last saw him, he is just as pagan as any Canaanite. And all of a sudden, there's by the time we see him in chapter 43, he's changed. He has a measure of integrity. He becomes the leaders among the brothers, and he stands up for them. He is no longer the sinful, self-absorbed coward that we saw earlier. And the result is that by by the end of Genesis, he's the one who receives the blessing from Jacob that it will be through him that the future ruler of Israel will come, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's an interesting play, an interesting dynamic here 
that you have to get to by looking at the whole movement of the text from chapter 37 through 47. So the, the center of this section is Joseph's uh, fall, where he's sent to prison, and then his elevation to a position of uh, prominence in Egypt, and then the brothers coming down to Egypt. In this section, in chapters 39 through 42, they're at the very center of this whole narrative, because that's where the whole story changes. And remember, this is a narrative. It is the writer telling a story, and it's filled with drama, and it's filled with all kinds of bizarre behavior of real human beings, and yet it's at the very center of this story. And what makes a good story is conflict, and the conflict ultimately is with with their own sin natures, and we see the resolution of that. And by the time you finish the book of Genesis, you see a change among all of the brothers spiritually, and they're quite a bit different by chapters uh, 47, 48, 49 than they were earlier when we first saw them in chapters uh, 35, 36, and 37. So that just gives you an idea of the structure. We'll come back to this slide several times in the coming weeks to orient our our thinking. Now, last time we saw two basic points in chapter 42. The first was that God works out the greater good through the circumstances of life. God is in control. It's Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes or that He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And what we saw there is that after revealing to Joseph through the dreams of the Pharaoh what would take place in Egypt, that there would be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, that Joseph is then brought in to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He interprets those dreams and Pharaoh elevates him to a position that is number two in the land, which is the grace of God. Because here Joseph is a condemned, attempted rapist. He is a slave. He is a Semite, none of which would bring him any favor in Egypt. But the results and the impression of the dream upon Pharaoh is so enormous that when Joseph comes in, and we just get a glimpse, really, of what was probably said, just the the high points, when Joseph comes in and tells Pharaoh what the dream meant, and Pharaoh asks him, well, how would you handle this? He lays out a whole master plan for handling the future seven-year famine that the Pharaoh recognizes Joseph's wisdom and his skill and promotes him despite all of these uh, negative things. And that ought to tell us that no matter what the circumstances in our past might be, if God has a plan for our life, then God is the one who is going to promote us and God is the one who is going to use us in His plan despite whatever blemishes there may be on our record or whatever past failures there may be on our record or whatever the world may think. So we see how Jake, how uh, in chapter 42 Jacob learns in the midst of this famine that there's grain down in Egypt. He tells the brothers to go down to Egypt and to buy and purchase grain from the Egyptians but he keeps Benjamin at home. That's very important because this his love for Benjamin is now comes into the center of this drama. He has already lost 
the firstborn son of his beloved Rachel, and he doesn't want to do anything to lose this secondborn son, the, the only son he has left of his beloved Rachel. So the brothers all go down to Egypt. They appear before Joseph, who is disguised. They don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. They think he is simply an Egyptian official. And Joseph begins to work upon them. In the second part of the chapter, we see from verse 8 down to about verse 34, how Joseph tests the brothers. And it is God, the Holy Spirit, ultimately, who is working through Joseph to expose the guilt of these brothers. The, the key conflict in all of this goes back to their sin, their, their hostility, their treachery, their betrayal of Joseph and how that has fragmented the family, the, the chosen race now, the descendants of Abraham. And so there has to be a reconciliation and there has to be forgiveness for this sin. So first, God has to raise their sin consciousness. And that's the same thing that happens to us when we're out of fellowship. If you're out of fellowship for uh, any length of time, then God the Holy Spirit is going to begin to work on you to reveal to you the sin that is in your life that needs to be confessed and uh, brought before God so that it can be dealt with in confession so that there can be forgiveness and restoration of fellowship, so that you can move forward in your Christian life. And that may involve taking you through various stages of divine discipline if you're hard-headed and you don't want to uh, deal with that sin, according to 1 John 1, 9, to admit or acknowledge that it is a sin. And this whole issue of dealing with sin, which is more than simple confession, confession gets you forgiveness, But confession doesn't give you growth. And I think that's a misconception that some people have, is that all I have to do is confess my sin, and that's all that's necessary. Confession simply restores you to fellowship, but it is learning the Word of God and applying the Word of God that keeps us in fellowship. And over the years, there have always been people who've come along and tried to come up with different solutions to the problem of Christians who treat 1 John 1.9 as a license to sin. And you're always going to have Christians who are going to take advantage of 1 John 1.9. I would bet that there's not one person in this room that hasn't taken advantage of 1 John 1.9 as a license to sin. And that is pretty typical behavior for an adolescent believer or a baby believer who is given a certain amount of freedom before they have the capacity and the maturity to properly handle it. And you see the same thing in life. When parents are raising children, that first time they leave children at home alone, uh, children always want to test the boundaries of that freedom. And it might not be the first time, it might be the second or third time, but eventually they're going to uh, treat that freedom with a certain amount of license. And if that isn't dealt with eventually, or if their behavior isn't discovered, then they can eventually get to a point where they think they can just get away with anything, and then finally they do something uh, big enough or bad enough to merit some discipline. They get caught, and then uh, their parents lower the boom on them, and they begin to learn that with freedom comes responsibility, and they can't treat freedom as a license to just do whatever it is they want to do. But grace always means that there is freedom. There's not this external uh, code that's just going to come down and bop you on the head every time 
every time you sin. And some people get the idea that that's what divine discipline is is like. I remember years ago reading a book by uh, Chuck Swindoll on the Grace Awakening, and he said if you're if people aren't taking advantage of grace then you're not teaching it. And I always thought that was a great point. So many people are so afraid somebody's going to take advantage of God's grace and be licentious that they're afraid to truly teach the grace of God, that you have the freedom to fail, and you can only have the freedom to succeed to the degree you have the freedom to fail. And so we have the freedom to fail, and we take advantage of it, and eventually one day as we learn the Word, study the Word, and grow up, we realize that it's not all about simply... Uh, confessing our sin and then just keep committing the same sin over and over and over again and just going in and out of fellowship like a yo-yo and never going anywhere that eventually we have to start applying the word to those areas where there is ongoing sin these areas that where sin easily besets us the writer of Hebrews says so that we can begin to say no to the sin, and yes, to staying in fellowship and applying doctrine to that area of temptation, and that's when growth begins to take place. And we see that illustrated throughout this whole uh, section of Genesis. Now, last time as we went through uh, this last section, I pointed out that Joseph was going to test the brothers, and that's similar to the way God tests us. We grow only through going through these various Uh, When the brothers appeared before Joseph, he recognized the hand of God in this, that as they bowed down before him, he remembered his dreams, the dreams of the corn bowing down to him, the dreams of the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him, and he recognized that this was a uh, divine fulfillment. But he was determined to test them first. It's not enough sometimes when people have mistreated you, when they have treated you badly, when they have abused you, they often will superficially and quickly say, well, I'm sorry, forgive me, whatever. And so Joseph wanted to make sure that there had been a real change take place among his brothers. So before he exposed himself to them, he wanted to make sure that they had indeed changed. He wanted to find out if they were still the same superficial, arrogant, self-absorbed, self-promoting brothers that he had left. And so he tests them. He wants to see if there is change that's taken place in their life. And change is at the core of Christian growth. The Christian growth process is all about change. Change from being an unrighteous, sinful uh, unbeliever. At the point of salvation, you are positionally changed, but you have to experientially grow as a believer. And that's that process of taking in the Word of God. Romans 12.2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the change that takes place. It It doesn't just happen. And the reason I say that is because there's some people that get the idea that if I just go to Bible class and confess my sins and take a lot of notes, that when I get tempted to sin, the Holy Spirit's just going to make that decision for me. And eventually, the Holy Spirit sort of takes over. And that's not how it works at all. That's sort of this quasi-mystical idea that slips into... Uh, has slipped into certain elements of uh, evangelical Christianity. And in the old days, it was called the let go and let God view, that somehow you just sort of reach this uh, 
position where you put yourself into a position of total passivity and God would just sort of take over. But that negates volitional responsibility, which is the first divine institution. You have to be responsible for the decisions that you make. So you learn the word, now you're responsible for it. That means that under the power of the Holy Spirit, you still have to make a tough decision not to become angry, not to become bitter, not to become vindictive, not to gossip, uh, not to judge, to make those decisions that when you're just right there in the heat of the moment, rather than acting like you always acted as a pagan unbeliever, you're going to apply doctrine and not act that way and not think those thoughts. That's the process. So it's all about change, but it's not just a self-imposed change. It's not just self-improvement. It's not pulling yourself up by your own bootstrap sort of uh, morality shift. It is the result of the Word of God plus the Spirit of God working in your life to change the way you think. Anybody can go out and change their behavior. There's all kinds of ways you can do that. You can go through behavioral modification. You can go through hypnosis. You can go through all kinds of different things. But when it comes to the Word of God, it's a different process. You go, you learn the Word. You walk by means of the Spirit. You allow the Spirit of God to be the one to produce the maturity in your life. But you still have to make those decisions. So Joseph is going to evaluate them and he comes up with a couple of tests. The first test was to, he decided that he would put them all in prison and say one of you gets to go back and get the other brother. Because the test relates to see how they treat the younger favored brother. Are they still consumed with the mental attitude sins of jealousy? That's what dominates this whole section, so we're going to have to take some time as we go through this to deal with the pathology of jealousy and mental attitude sins and its destructive aspect on the spiritual life. But he wants to see if they're still jealous of the younger favored brother. So that was the first test. By the next, by uh, three days later, he decided, well, maybe that was too rigorous so he's going to let all but one go back to get Benjamin and he's going to keep one as a hostage in Egypt to make sure they would have to return to get that other brother and at that point I started developing the doctrine of guilt and shame and so some of this is a repetition from last week some of this is development into new areas where our thinking needs to go first of all Guilt has to be acknowledged. Responsibility has to be admitted for any sin in order that fellowship be restored. That's a general principle, whether we're talking about fellowship with God or fellowship with other people. We have to acknowledge our guilt and we have to admit responsibility for failure in order for there to be any restoration of fellowship. Second principle is that forgiveness, this is on the flip side, on one side you have to admit your guilt, but on the other side, if you've been wronged by someone and they confess their sin, they acknowledge their guilt toward you, then you as a believer are obliged to forgive them and to move forward and to restore that fellowship so that Forgiveness must follow admitted responsibility and confession of sin. 
Now let's define a couple of terms. Third point, what is guilt? See, we live in an era when you look up in a dictionary, you go to the Internet and you look, at, look up guilt on Wikipedia. And the first thing that you're going to see is guilt is an emotion. They'll say some other things later on, but that is the, that is the knee-jerk response and thought on the street of what guilt is. We live in a uh, therapeutic, psychologized culture that thinks of guilt only in terms of guilt feelings and emotions. And we have all kinds of people who've grown up in homes where they were manipulated, made to feel guilty by parents. Of course, we always joke about certain religious and ethnic groups that Jewish mothers are always good at developing guilt in their children and Roman Catholics always grow up in a guilt-ridden home, all of these kinds of things. But, but there's a truth there, and that is that parents and others often manipulate people by making them feel guilty. So we have to draw this distinction between real guilt and emotional guilt. And real guilt is what takes place when you violate or break a rule or a law. It may be man's law or it may be God's law, but that's what guilt is. And guilt may not involve any emotion whatsoever. You can break any number of laws and not feel bad about it. You may feel bad if you get caught, but you may not feel bad about breaking the law. You drive 90 and a 70, you may not feel bad about that whatsoever. If you run a stop sign, you may not feel bad about that. If you run a stop sign and hit somebody, then you may feel bad about it. But guilt is not something that necessarily brings about or has an emotion attached to it, and that's important to understand. So true guilt is the breaking of a law, whether it's human or divine, and not necessarily accompanied by certain emotions. There's a third point. The fourth point is that today we have to understand how guilt is dealt with in terms of psychology. And it's mixed up with shame. In a moral culture that believes in absolute shame and guilt are often identical. But in a postmodern environment where there's no universal law, then there's no real guilt because all these values are just manufactured by the culture. So the only thing that you can do is just get rid of these norms and standards so you don't feel shame and everybody can do whatever they want to and we're going to legitimize everybody's uh, sins or some people's sins. Some people have politically correct sins and we can legitimize those, but other people have politically incorrect sins, and we're not going to legitimize those. Don't you wish you had a political action group that would go to Washington for you and, and try to get them to legislate uh, national approval for your particular sins like the uh, homosexuals do? Wouldn't that be great? It's no longer a sin. Just, you know, your anger is not sinful anymore. It's just okay. You can go be angry at whoever you want to. But So we live in a screwed-up world, but that's how it reinterprets these these words and why this meaning is these meanings are very very important. Guilt feelings do sometimes accompany real guilt, and that is because we recognize the problems, the horrors, the dangers, the consequences of what happens when we break God's law. So that guilt is the, defined as the breaking of God's law. A guilt feeling may arise when our conscience 
becomes involved because the conscience is the traffic cop of the soul. The conscience is where the norms and standards reside, the concepts of right and wrong. And when we violate that, then we feel badly about that. When you violate it enough over and over again, and you begin to rationalize that it's not really that bad, or it's not that bad because all I have to do is confess it and I'm forgiven, then what can happen, the Scripture says, is the conscience becomes seared. In other words, it becomes hardened. The scar tissue grows over the conscience so that it no longer seems as bad to have committed those particular infractions. Sometimes we feel guilty when we're not guilty. And sometimes we feel so bad about something that we did that even after we confess it to God, we still feel guilty and we can't believe God would forgive us. Now, when we do that, it's like saying, well, God really doesn't forgive us and 1 John 1, 9 is a lie. At that point, we, ju- we become guilty of sinful guilt where we are uh, denying the fact that God actually does forgive us. Now, all of that under point was under point four, that the challenge today is dealing with these psychologized therapeutic concepts and dealing with the, the difference between real guilt and guilt feelings and as well as shame that sometimes accompanies that. And shame is pretty much, it may be totally something that's personal. Nobody else may know about it, but it's just something that you feel that is associated with that sin. And if you are of a subjective, self-absorbed mindset, then what happens sometimes is it doesn't really matter what the objective Word of God says. You want to focus on how it made you feel. And if you grow up in a psychologized environment today, and we all make fun of it because, the big, of course, the big pop question is, well, how'd that make you feel? And everybody asks that question, well, I did such and so. Well, how'd that make you feel? And so the emphasis is always on, on feelings, and we have to get our attention off the feelings and on to objective reality, which only comes from the Word of God. So that leads to the fifth point, and that is that biblically, there's only a recognition of real or legal guilt. The Bible really doesn't address guilt feelings or the emotional aspect, aside from a couple of passages in Second Corinthians chapter 5 that deal with uh, what is wrongly translated godly sorrow, and it's just remorse. But the emphasis in those passages is that the remorse may or may not accompany sin. What matters is repentance, and that's a totally different dimension that we're going to have to address here, is what is the relationship of repentance to confession? And what is the relationship of repentance to the Christian life? Biblically, the issue is recognition of real or legal guilt. First of all, we have to realize that we're all guilty because of Adam's original sin. So we all stand in violation of God's absolute standard. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So every human being is born guilty, whether they recognize it, acknowledge it, or feel like it or not. Jesus Christ went to the cross in order to pay for that legal guilt, the fact that we broke God's eternal law. We violated His character. Forgiveness then, point number six, forgiveness then is the removal of the guilt 
and restoration to fellowship. That's what forgiveness is. It is a removal of the guilt and restoration to fellowship. But biblically speaking, real forgiveness comes as the result of a recognition of guilt. So that a lot of times people say, well, just forgive me. Well, there's no recognition of guilt. And sometimes there's a superficial recognition of guilt, and we know that it's not accompanied by real change. And so we're, while we are at one level ready to forgive the person, at another level we're not ready to trust the person. Because we know that there hasn't been any real wrestling with the problem. They're going to, they're going to do the same thing again. So we, we wrestle with this same thing that Peter wrestled with when he asked the Lord, how often should I forgive someone? Seven times? And the Lord said, no, 70 times seven. In other words, you don't ever stop forgiving them. So we wrestle with that, and that's hard, especially the, the more deeply you've been hurt or betrayed by someone, the more difficult it is to deal with real forgiveness and to treat them in the same way that God does, but that is what the Scriptures teach, and we need to understand that. Uh, the whole story of Joseph and his brothers is the, a classic Old Testament example of what it means to forgive those who are our enemies, because his brothers treated him as much like an enemy as anything. Okay, so point number six was that forgiveness is the removal of guilt and restoration to fellowship. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm expressing these points in a generic sort of sense, because these principles, the way I'm expressing them, can be applied to either our relationship with God or our relationship with people. Both apply. Now, point number seven, the biblical word for guilt is asam. And in many cases, this word stands for guilt offerings, which was one of the Levitical offerings. It stands for legal guilt. You don't have the idea of of guilt feelings, though, in the Old Testament. So, Assam indicates the transgression of a law, a norm, or a standard. It is exactly how I have defined it. So, we have to, once again, we go back to that principle of Romans 12.2, of not being conformed to the world, which thinks of guilt only in terms of emotion, and we're going to think of guilt only in terms of how the Bible defines it, which is the violation of an absolute principle and when it's related to God that means a violation of God's holy and righteous character so the biblical word for guilt emphasizes objective guilt real guilt the violation or transgression of a law norm or standard point number eight emotion may or may not accompany guilt when we do things that are wrong sometimes we have remorse that accompanies it sometimes we don't If we commit the same infraction over and over again, or it's not a very serious misdeed, then we may not have any remorse whatsoever when it comes to to doing that, whatever it might be. If it's a bad habit pattern that we have, whether it's uh, sinful habits such as getting angry, losing your temper, whether it's just being lazy, uh, whatever it may be, then we may not ever feel very badly about it. Emotion may or may not accompany the guilt. Remorse, regret, and sorrow may accompany, legitimately accompany sin. So just because you feel bad about it doesn't mean it's wrong to feel bad about it. 
What's wrong is to think that the remorse and the regret is what impresses God with the seriousness of your confession. Remorse and regret is not what's important in confession. Confession, as we'll see in a minute, is simply admitting or acknowledging your wrongdoing to God. It's not how you feel about it that is important. It is the admission of the guilt that's important. Because sometimes we might, uh, let's say you have a problem with, with getting angry. And road rage, as a good example, comes to mind. Getting frustrated in traffic in Houston. And so uh, after you particularly had one bad incident, somebody told me of one the other day, and actually pulled off to the side of the road to confront somebody, which is very dangerous. But let's say you just get really angry at somebody and so angry that it shocks you. And you feel bad because you realize you could have put yourself in an extremely vulnerable situation because you just lost control. And now you feel real bad about it. So you go to God and you're really sorry and you confess your sin and you're just you know, pleading with the Supreme Court of Heaven that God won't punish you uh, because of this horrible sin you committed. And, and there's a lot of genuine sorrow there. I mean, you know you really messed up. But see, God is omniscient. He knows that in the next five weeks you're going to do it 20,000 more times. So we try to pull the wool over God's eyes sometimes with our own emotion because it shocked us so much that we want to convince God that I'm never going to do that again. And God says, no, I'm omniscient. That's a lie. So we... The the emotion may be there. There's nothing wrong for it to be there. Sometimes it's genuine. It's a, we violated our conscience. It's genuine. But that's not what impresses God. That's not what gets forgiveness. What gets forgiveness is the admission of guilt. So, emotion may or may not be there. If it's not there, it doesn't mean the confession is any less genuine. So, that takes us to the ninth point. Since sin is a violation of God's standard, then there must be a recognition of guilt before God for restoration of fellowship. That's where it begins. That's why in Psalm 51, when David says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned, people say, Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you, you deceived Bathsheba. You had adultery with Bathsheba. You entered into this conspiracy to have her husband, to cover up the sin, to have her husband killed, and you had him killed. You, this, this sin, you've, you hurt all kinds of people. Yeah, but sin, by definition, is a violation of the character of God, the absolute norms and standards of God's character. Therefore, you can only sin against God. You may also violate other people in the process, but that's different. You can only sin against God because it is only the breach of God's standards that results in sin. And when we do that, we call, when we admit our guilt to God, we call that confession. But at the same time, we also know that in the process of committing sins against God, we hurt those we love. We hurt other people. We do things that wrong them. And we have to make that right as well. There has to be that restoration of fellowship. We have to go to them to admit the wrongdoing, and as I said, that initial principle, they are also under obligation 
that when we go to them to seek forgiveness, that they forgive us as believers. You have to forgive those who come to you and admit their wrongdoing, and that's the hard part. Now, what's confession? This is where so many people get off-center. In fact, what's difficult is when you go and work in other cultures. For example, I, when I go over to Ukraine and have gone to Russia, the concept of confession in 1 John 1, 1.9 is translated in the Russian Bible with the word meaning remorse. So right away, you're, you've got trouble because in the way some of these Bibles are translated, they, they immediately have the wrong idea there, and you have to start correcting everything. Of course, we used to always have to do that with the King James. Confession is understood from the Old Testament context, and one of the best verses to illustrate the meaning of confession is in Psalm 32. Psalm 32.5. Now, Psalm 32 is a post-confession praise psalm to God for having forgiven David for his sin. Psalm 51 is the confession or the psalm that's written uh, as a psalm describing his confession of sin to God, which is where he said, Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. But in Psalm 32.5, he reflects back upon how God forgave him of this sin and what was going on in his life at the time of the sin. And there's a lot of things we could say about it. He talks about how his, his uh, joints hurt, his whole body hurt, he was under divine discipline. But in verse 5, we see the core of his confession and what it's involved. In the New King James, we read, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, quote, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, there's no mention there of repentance. There's no mention there of, Lord, I'm never going to commit adultery again. I'm not going to get involved with a conspiracy to commit murder again. I'm not going to sin again. There's there's none of that. Psalm 51 is a psalm of confession, and there's a lot of emotion there. And remember, David was under a lot of divine discipline at the time, and when you're under a lot of divine discipline, you can be very emotional. But that's not that's not the key to his forgiveness and his confession. But if you ever go through times of extended carnality when your life is just absolutely fragmenting and exploding around you because of your own carnality, you can be pretty emotional at the time because you realize how how stupid you've been. So David starts off by saying, I acknowledge my sin to you. Now, one of the basic elements of Hebrew poetry is what's called synonymous parallelism. Rather than rhyming words, they rhymed ideas in synonymous parallelism so that the first stanza is stated again in different words in the second stanza. And so through the use of synonyms, we can come to understand what certain words mean. So here he has the phrase, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. This is what confession is. Now, don't get confused by the fact that he uses the word confess in verse 5. That's just a stylistic variation in English. It's the same word 
in the Hebrew. The word that we have for acknowledge is the hyphial imperfect of the Hebrew verb yada. And the hyphial stem of a verb indicate it, it, it's a causative stem. So yada basically means to know something. But this isn't the idea of simply uh, knowing something or being aware of something. It is the idea of letting someone know something, causing them to become aware or informed about something. So it is accurately translated in the English, the idea I acknowledged or I admitted or I made known to you, God, the sin that I had committed. So the idea of confession is to make known or to admit something to God. It's, it's, doesn't, none of that conveys the idea of emotion or remorse or even repentance. Repentance is also another word. Look it up in the dictionary and it's going to define it with some emotional word. Repentance in the Hebrew is, I mean, excuse me, in the Greek as well as the Hebrew, it's the idea of change, changing your mind. And sometimes that takes process. We all know that. Changing our thinking about something doesn't happen in a one-shot decision. Sometimes it takes years of the influence of the Word of God and the Spirit of God for us to see real change and take hold in our thinking and in our living. So repentance is a sometimes a process that's part of our spiritual growth. Whereas in order for that to have any value spiritually, we have to repent in fellowship. If we're out of fellowship when we go through, when we're trying to change, we're just doing it in the energy of the flesh. You have to be in fellowship before you can repent under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. So, confession always precedes repentance. But here we just have the fact of, of Confession, because that's all that's necessary for forgiveness. So the how I have mentioned down there in the, dif- diction- in the uh, definition is the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon. Now, one of the reasons I've put that there is because occasionally somebody gives me something to read that's written by a pastor, or written by an evangelist, and uh, they try to document their sources. And the sad thing is that we have way too many pastors and evangelists who have never had good formal training in the languages. And I I read someone recently, and they're citing sources that I would be embarrassed to cite because they're they're like citing a first-grade primer for a definition for a word. In a sense, it's accurate, but it's it's not a scholarly or a, a respectable source if you're really getting into the nitty-gritty of exegesis and theology. You don't want to go to Vine's Expository Dictionary of uh, New Testament and Old Testament words as your final authority on the definition of a word. You don't want to go to, to Wiest's Word Studies of the Greek New Testament for your final authority on the meaning of Greek and Hebrew words. These are not good sources. They're, they're, if you're teaching Sunday school and you want to get a, and you don't know anything about Greek or Hebrew and you want to get a general idea of a meaning of a word, that can be helpful. It's a good place to start at a rather, uh, uh, elementary level, but not if you're trying to do uh, serious exegesis. 
So the word acknowledged, according to the Hebrew-Aramaic lexicon, which is the finest Hebrew lexicon available, uh, says that the meaning in the hifil is to let someone know something, to make known or to inform someone of something. That's what confession is. It is to inform God of your wrongdoing. In the second stanza, the parallel, the writer says, My iniquity I have not hidden. See, the opposite of acknowledging is to not conceal it. Or the opposite of acknowledging would be to conceal. So he uses that parallel and says, I have not concealed it. I have not covered it. It's the Hebrew word kasa, which in the P-A-O means to cover, to clothe, to hide, or to conceal. He has, prior to confession, tried to conceal the sin. Now he openly admits it to God. And he then says what his confession statement was. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And the word there for confess is the same word in the Hebrew that we have for acknowledge. It is a hifil stem of yada. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will acknowledge my sin, my transgressions to the Lord. That's how it's stated in the original. It's the same verb in both places, so it should be translated the same way in English in both places. And what's the result? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. That forgiveness isn't conditioned upon repentance. It's not conditioned on uh, dealing with any other sin. It is conditioned solely upon the act of confession. It's the same thing that we have in the New Testament. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins, that is what you just confessed, and to forgive you of all unrighteousness, the sins that you committed that you don't know about, the sins that you committed that you're not committing right then, but you're not willing to admit her sins yet. Did you know that? That there are times in your life when you've got sins going on over in the left wing of your soul, and at this particular moment you're not committing those sins. But you're not really willing to let God deal with those sins over there yet. Because those are real comfort zone sins. So you're going to admit X, Y, and Z sin, but you're not going to admit A, B, and C sin. Well, somebody told me recently there's a teaching going around that if I don't commit, if I don't confess A, B, and C sins, when I confess X, Y, and Z, I won't be forgiven for X, Y, and Z or A, B, and C. And that's just contrary to what 1 John 1 9 says. But you see, the problem is that people are trying to deal with the fact that there's a lot of Christians out there who think that grace means I can sin with impunity. They've identified the problem correctly, but they haven't identified the solution correctly. The solution is to recognize that it's not about confession. Confession just gets you back into a position to grow. Just because you confess your sin doesn't mean you're starting to grow again. It just means you're back in right relationship with the Holy Spirit so you can begin to walk by the Spirit, abide in Christ, and grow again. And that's where repentance begins. Because repentance is that act of change. And the illustration that we're going to see in this section of Genesis is what's happened in the life of Judah. Because what happens in the next chapter is that when the brothers return to return to Canaan 
and they've left Simeon behind. They eat up all the grain eventually. The famine continues to be severe. And finally, uh, Jacob uh, is trying to figure out what to do. And he says, okay, it's time to go back and buy some more food. And the person who speaks up and is a spokesman and the leader for the group is Judah, indicating that he is not in a self-serving position as he we last saw him in chapter 38. But he's changed. And when Judah reminds him that that man in Egypt said, we have to bring Benjamin back with us. And, and Isaac does, I mean, Jacob doesn't want Benjamin out of his sight. And now, now Jacob has to, has to, has to relinquish him and let him go back. And he doesn't trust these boys at all. They're the ones who took Joseph away from him. And now Simeon's gone. And he just figures if Benjamin's out of his sight, he's going to lose Benjamin as well. So he doesn't trust his sons. But what happens is Judah, rather than being that self-absorbed manipulator, remember manipulation runs in the family, rather than being that self-absorbed manipulator that said, well, let's, let's sell Joseph for the money, what Judah says is, I'm going to be the surety for his life. He stands up as a substitute for Benjamin. He's going to put his own life on the line. And it shows he, he's in a position of leadership. He has a level of integrity and responsibility. And he's no longer self-absorbed. There's been a change in Judah's life. And this continues throughout the rest of this narrative and until we get to the end. And then at the end, it is Judah who receives the blessing. Remember, there's two issues that we've seen since at least that we got into the story of Esau and Jacob, the birthright and the blessing. The birthright is going to go to Joseph. And Joseph gets the double portion. And it's his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that he has at the end of the, uh, last, uh, the last chapter, chapter, rather chapter 41. It's those two sons that he has that replace him. There's no tribe of Joseph. Joseph is instead replaced by his two sons. There's a tribe of Ephraim and a tribe of Manasseh which represents the double portion of the blessing that went to Joseph designated as the heir, the firstborn. It's a title. It's not chronology. We've studied that before. But the blessing doesn't go to Joseph. The blessing is going to end up going to Judah. And it's a great lesson in, how, in learning that, that grace means that no matter how badly you've screwed up, there's still room for recovery and there's still room for realizing that blessing that God has for you no matter how much you screwed up because there is real confession. I mean, real forgiveness. Not only has, has there been confession in Judah's life, but there's change. Change is what comes as the result of genuine biblical concept of repentance because as he takes in the Word of God, there is that transformation that takes place and he grows and matures, and it shows that people can and do change, but it's real change only when it's a result of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be encouraged by the results in the life of Judah, but also to recognize the challenge in our own lives that we are responsible to uh, forgive one another, literally to be gracious to one another, just as you have forgiven us for Christ's sake, and that the model for forgiveness is always 
what took place on the cross and your grace. Challenge us with these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.